If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. As I titled this Bible study this morning, The First Christmas, we're going to take our our second look of a a three-part study that we started this past Wednesday of uh, the birth of Christ, of him coming in this world. In John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was made flesh. That's, that word is God. God himself became a human being. He was sent to this world, birthed through Mary, miraculous conception, and became a human so that he can relate to us so that he can have that fellowship, that communion with us. And not only that, but that through his suffering on the cross, he would take away the sins of the world. That he would give us freedom so that we can have the grace of God in our lives. That we can have the Holy Spirit imparted to us as a sign of our salvation. And we look at Jesus coming to this world as life-changing, not for the entire world only, but for us personally. Because he did it for each of us individually. He knows everything that's going on in our lives, our, our struggles, our trials that we go through, our desires, our ambitions. And he died so that he can help us in fulfilling these things so we can live that purpose-filled life. And when we study how he came to this world, it gives us an example, a model, an encouraging word of the value of what it means to be humble, of what it is to live a purpose-filled life. And we do this by making room in our hearts for Christ. So let us begin our study with Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Why don't, I'm going to actually read the first uh, portion of this scripture here so we can get the whole picture before we dive into the actual text in our study. It says in verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, and to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage 
of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. We see this nativity scene perhaps in our living rooms right now. Maybe we have them set up around our house somewhere by the Christmas tree. And we we always think of Christmas as being, oh yeah, that's Jesus' birthday, yes. Interestingly enough, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. We don't really know when he was born. Uh, There's a lot of speculation, but uh, who's to really say? But when we look at the account of Christ, we know, we see that we do have that freedom to worship Christ our Lord on any day of the week, and we can celebrate his birthday on December 25th, because God gives us that freedom to do so. So I have no uh, qualms against us celebrating Christmas this year or putting up a Christmas tree. But if you want to do uh, some cool research one day, you get uh, into conspiracy theories, something like that. Look up where December 25th first came from. You'll be quite fascinated. (laughs) But beginning with with verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now this Caesar Augustus, his name historically was also Thurinius. And he was the second emperor in Rome. And he had called the census, and the word there, the registered, that word, it means enrolled, and in order so that the people could be taxed. And it's like, man, sad day. Already taxes are coming now into the the whole realm under Rome. And it says that this census was put in place historically by Augustus, And now, he actually tried to have this census completed 27 years prior. But however, due to the disturbances in the empire, the census never took place until finally, 27 years later, he had the power to do so. And what I recognize is that it's God's sovereign timing. That here, Caesar, he's thinking he's... uh, 
the king of the whole world, because he perhaps, humanly speaking, was, is thinking, oh, well, I'm going to just, you know, tax the people now, and this is the way things are going to be, not realizing that God would actually use this registry to bring the Savior to the whole world. God was going to use this. God had allowed for this to happen. And sometimes we think we're so in control of what's going on in our world, and we're not. It says in verse 2, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, the Roman Empire at this time, it was being formed. Originally, the, the Roman Empire was ruled by several generals, but gradually the power began more and more to be invested into one man, and that's who we're reading about right here. Caesar was a title. It wasn't his actual name. Kind of... Even his name Augustus was actually given to him by those of the Senate. And he first was called the dictator of Rome, but he didn't really like that. So then they said, okay, we're going to call you Caesar Augustus. And that word Augustus means God. So he's like, oh, yeah, I like that. We could go with Augustus. And that's what they called him, Caesar Augustus. And he was the most powerful man in the world at the time. Rome had conquered the ancient world into submission. People had to pay tribute to them. And there hadn't been any Rome, any wars in Rome for over 16 years at this point because they dominated the entire world at that point. Even they had this temple, the Temple of Janus, which was a goddess of war. And they had to close the gates of the temple because there was no war going on. Now, there's records, even historically, in Egypt to this day, that show of this census, that it took place every 14 years. It says in verse 3, So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now we took a look at the account of Joseph and Mary and kind of the little scare that Joseph had to go through of Mary coming to him, telling him, I'm prego. And she, he's like, what? Like, what do you mean? And he was thinking she cheated on me. I got now like we're, we're in this engagement where I'm, I have to now secretly put her away and break up with her and I can't let people know because then they're going to stone her and he's but he's a righteous man and he's a good man and he wants to protect her and then the angel appears to him and tells him Joseph don't be afraid what was conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit it's a miracle now both Joseph and Mary they are both from the house of David as was prophesied the Messiah would come from David's line and now they're, because of this, required to leave where they were in the city of Nazareth to go all the way to Bethlehem, which is some 70 miles, to register for the census. Now, for us, we can travel 70 mile, miles by vehicle, you know, if you're going 70 miles an hour in an hour. But for a pregnant wife and husband to travel in their time, 
on donkey or or camels or whatever types of horse there was back then for a pregnant woman at this point in her life. It's a hard pass for, I think, for most. It's like, we're not going anywhere. We're staying here. However, this is how powerful that the Roman government was, where if Caesar said, hey, everybody has to go to their hometown to get registered, then everybody's got to go. So this is, imagine, a very unpleasant journey. Can you imagine they're going along in their, through hills and valleys and deserts and all types of terrain, and I'm sure... Maybe she's craving McDonald's around the corner to get those cravings. And as they're in this, now this is his wife. He married her, his betrothed wife. They went through these these seasons of having a couple relationship. I, I kind of I tried to explain this on on Wednesday night, and I kind of botched it. But in the Jewish culture, I want to explain this again. There was these three sessions that a couple would have. The first one was the engagement se- session. And that could happen when they were children because it was an arranged marriage. The, the parents were like, hey, you, you look like you got a good young boy who's close to my daughter's age. You want, like, we, we're both like wealthy families. You, wanna, like, you know what? Our, our kids should marry each other. And they say, yeah, arranged marriage. So that's the engagement period. It's an arranged marriage. And that could happen at a young age. But then when they got older and they were encouraged to date, then became what was called the espousal period. And now the espousal period in Jewish culture is when the relationship would be very committed, where if they were to break up the relationship at this point, they would actually have to get a a bill of divorce for this relationship, even though they weren't husband and wife yet. And then finally, they had the betrothal period. And the betrothal period is the marriage. There's the marriage ceremony, the consummation of the marriage. And so at this point in time, Joseph and Mary are already married, though he had not yet known her until she had her firstborn son, Jesus. And then look at verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So first we see this beautiful picture of a a mother giving birth to her son. That mother to son relationship right there, that connection. She wraps him in swaddling cloths. And those are those types of linen cloths where sometimes you see the baby just hanging out and the the mom and it's kind of like wrapped around her, tightly knit. And as important as this birth was as she's having a baby, Mary and Jesus had nowhere to stay. There was no room for them in the inn. They had no home. All that was available was a manger. Now, a manger, that it, it's literal meaning it's like a crib, but it's not a crib for babies. It's a stall for cow food, for hay, for livestock to come and graze and eat. And this is where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was born. We look at the humility of Christ. Of He didn't come to this world born into some royal line or some 
kingly way. He came just as a humble human put in a manger. When we look at the word humility in the Bible, humility, it means to make lower in rank or position, to be less than those who are honored or rewarded, and to lower one's pride. Humility means to be modest and also to be unassuming. It's quite interesting when you look at the Greek word for humility. You get all those definitions for it. Now, the very incarnation of God becoming a human, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, Jesus, who was there at the beginning, who created everything, becoming a human being, that had to be humiliating. Not for, for in the sense of, of Jesus being, in his deity becoming less, but in his humanity. Jesus is perfect in his deity. Yet he was made human, and because he was made human, he endured physical suffering. He had our same human weaknesses, yet without sin. Jesus would experience tiredness. Jesus would experience pain. He would experience hunger, even temptation, and then even death. And all of this Jesus took on, and he endured it even unto the cross because everything that Jesus did was motivated by love. It was for the love of you, for the love of everyone here this morning. When we see Christ breaking bread with his disciples, it's not just simply just to feed himself, but he's breaking bread with his disciples in fellowship because he loves them and wants to have that relationship with them. Everything we see Christ doing in the Bible, his motivation for it is love. Whether he was healing or teaching, whether he was saving people, it was all because of the love that God had placed in his heart that was already there in his heart from the beginning. And I'm reminded that so should we be motivated by love. When we look at the activities that we're doing, when we look at our nature, when we look at our desires, are they motivated by love? Or is there selfish ambition there? Is there things that are in our life that have no value in eternity? Now, we don't need to condemn ourselves. Uh, Of course, yes, we are sinners. But we should focus on the way that God views us, on what God thinks of us. And when you think about the way God thinks about us, you realize, man, God loves me. And he does want me to be holy. He does want me to be pure. But God's not condemning us. God loves us. So today we have that opportunity. What is our motivating drive today? Are we motivated by love? Is what we're doing because of love or is it because of fear? Is it because of anger or hatred? Now as we look at Mary and Joseph and Jesus in this manger, 
we see there is a problem of why they're there in the major. It's because there is no room at the inn. Now, perhaps this morning, my fellow Christians here, perhaps there's no room in our heart for Christ the Savior. Maybe there's a parts of our life that we do not allow Christ to be there because we don't want him there. There's a, a really good book called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd. And it's a small little book. It's really short, actually. It's like super short. But it's one of the, the first books that uh, I was told to read as a, as a Christian. And it's this cool little illustration that uh, this preacher once gave of how his life, he illustrates it as a home. As he invites Christ into his life, he invites Christ into his home in this story that he gives in this account. And as, if, as you read the book, what this man does, he sa- first says, Christ, I want you to come into my life. And he's like, okay, come into my home. And this home is the life. And then he goes through each and every individual room in the home. He's like, oh, this is the library. This is where I study. And then as Jesus walks in there, he's like, wow, okay, cool. Like, I see like you got your Bible. And he's like, oh, what's this? You got a uh, uh, your sport magazines, like what's what's this Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition? We need to get rid of this. And he's like, oh, so, so he gets embarrassed of that or something like that. I'm kind of making my own version of it. <laughs> but he kind of goes like that. And then he goes into each room. He's like, oh, this is, um, here's, this is the, the dining room. Uh, this is where I, I, I like spend time uh, eating what I, my desires are and what, all my appetites and things like that. And Christ looks at all those things and there's things that are good and things that he also has to get rid of. Like these are unhealthy for you in your life. And it's cool how they break down and go to all these individual rooms. And then finally, uh, as Christ is going and he's taking down certain pictures that shouldn't be there, certain books, uh, think about that in your life. What if Christ walked into your home today? What would, would he see? Would there be things that you're just like, oh, like we got to get rid of this, throw it in the trash. Like before Christ comes in, we can't let him see that. Uh, this needs to be a little more organized. We don't want him to think that we're like not focused. And all, all those things that Christ does when he comes into our life. And then finally, towards the end of this little short book, there is the hall closet. And the man uh Jesus is like, oh, what, there's, there's something like this disgusting odor from the closet. Like, what, let's go in there. Like, and it, the closet's locked. And he's like, oh, no, 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 don't go in there, Jesus. There, there's things in there that I, I don't want you to see, that I don't want anybody to see. I, I, I don't like what's in there. And it smells like death. And Jesus is like, well, if, if you don't let me go into the, this closet to get rid of this odor, and I, I can't just live upstairs and let that odor just, I, I can't be part of that. So we're either going to have to get the key and open this up or, or I'm going to have to leave. Uh, and then finally the, the man says, okay, but look, like I, I, there's some death in there that I can't get rid of myself. Yeah, it's been with me too long. Now Jesus is like, don't worry, like I could get rid of it for you. So he agrees, he gets the key, and he gives it to Jesus, and then Jesus opens the door, and he cleans it out, and he gives him a new closet. 
I'm going to read a little portion of that book to you right now, actually. Jesus, in this book, Jesus says, just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, and took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it and fixed it up, doing it all in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. Then a thought came to me. I said to myself, I have been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room, and no sooner have I cleaned that than another room is dirty. I begin on the second room, and the first room becomes dusty again. I am so tired and weary trying to maintain a clean heart and an obedient life. I am just not up to it. So I ventured a question, Lord, is there any chance that you would take over the responsibility of the whole house and operate it for me and with me just as you did that closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my heart what it ought to be and my life where it ought to be? And we know Jesus' answer is yes. Jesus wants to come into our heart. He wants to come into those areas of our heart and mind, of our life that we're trying to keep in the closet. And he wants us not only to give us just the closet, just that, that dirty part, but he wants us to give him the title deed to our whole life, our whole house. And he's not condemning us. He's not angry at us. Because he finds so much joy in giving us that free will to worship him there. So may we make room for Christ in our hearts. Now in verse 8, continuing on. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, from this verse, we realize it's extremely unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th because the winter would have been too cold for the shepherd to live in the fields with their flocks. Shepherds in this time, they were considered actually to have a very dirty occupation. As far as social status goes, to be a shepherd was not a high-ranking social status. Their job was to be among the livestock, so they would smell like the livestock and all the animal care work that took part of it. And yet this is who God chooses to reveal his message of Christ's birth to. Just shepherds. Not to the leaders uh, of the world and not to even the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, but he reveals this to just some humble shepherds there. 
And then in verse 9, it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were gratefully afraid. Now, this angel first appears to them. There are some who speculate maybe perhaps it was Gabriel because we do often see Gabriel announcing the birth of the Christ. There was actually in the Bible, there's three archangels that we know about. One being Gabriel. Does anyone know the other two? Michael's a a second one. And do we know the third one is Lucifer? All three were archangels. Lucifer, we know, he fell and became Satan. Now it is believed that Gabriel was an archangel to the Christ, and Michael was an archangel to God the Father, and perhaps Lucifer may have been an archangel to the Holy Spirit. Now this glory that is shining around these shepherds from this angel and from the Lord. Remember, even Moses, when coming in contact with the glory of God, had asked God, let me see your glory. And God told Moses, Moses, no man has seen my glory and lived. You can't look at me. You'll die. It'll be like Indiana Jones, and they just blow up when they look at the Ark of the Covenant. You guys have seen that movie. I can see that. But Moses, when he went to go visit, when he went to ask for God's glory, to see God's glory, God told him, look, I won't let you see me, but I'll let you see the afterglow. I'll let you see my glory departing from an area. And that alone, when Moses saw the afterglow, caused Moses' face to shine so bright that people were fearful of him when they saw him. Now, there's a term called the Shekinah glory of God, and it comes from these Jewish rabbis, but the Shekinah actually doesn't appear in the Bible, but the concept clearly does. The first time that we see this is when the Israelites were journeying through the wilderness, and God guided them. By day, he w- God came in the presence of a cloud, And by night, a pillar of fire leading up to the heavens. And that Shekinah glory of God was there. What that word means in Hebrew is he caused to dwell. And it signified the Lord's divine presence and his visiting here on earth. And I'm reminded of the glory of God. Even Paul, as we read it, studied him. The Shekinah glory of God knocked him off of his high horse and blinded him. But when I think of God's glory and how we're not supposed to take it for ourselves or, or, or say that we are the thing that is to be glorified, to give glory to God, it's the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. You see, the moon itself doesn't have any light emitting off of it. The reason why we see the moon shining so bright and looks glorious in space 
is actually because the sun is shining its light on it and it's reflecting its light back on us. And sometimes, especially on a full moon, our nighttime can get pretty bright because of that moon. And it's only when clouds and uh, other things of the sort block, all the smog in our sky blocks us from seeing that brightness. In that same manner, we're to be like a mirror reflecting the glory of God to this world, to reflect Christ's love to others. So this great Shekinah glory, this heavenly realm is now visiting these shepherds. And then in verse 10, it says, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Now notice the angel has to tell them, don't be afraid because they were probably super scared. First of all, it's like you're thinking, I don't, I don't think they believed in aliens back then, but these angelic beings, what is this? They're ghosts, phantoms, what was going through their mind? But the glory that was appearing around them it still caused them to be afraid. Remember even Daniel in the Old Testament, when he was visited by an angel, he fell on his face. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary... He told her that she was going to have, be the mother of the Messiah. And in Luke 1 verse 30, Gabriel tells her, don't be afraid. And then an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. And even in a dream told Joseph, don't be afraid. Now I can't imagine how these angels would have looked. The Bible does describe uh, a certain angel with six wings in the Bible. And it just the magnificence that they would contain. I'm sure it would be quite frightening. But they tell them consistently, do not be afraid. And I think that's a message for us this morning. This year we've had a lot to be afraid about. But I'm telling us we do not need to be afraid when we have Christ with us. See, perfect love casts out fear. So we should ask for God to have his perfect love poured into our hearts so that we're not paralyzed by fear. Just this week, faced with a little storm after I taught on going through storms, it was fearful that perhaps this week I I came in contact with someone who had COVID and then I got tested came back negative, praise the Lord. But there was that fear, that fear built up. So I had us praying like, all right, I'm going to go get tested. And thank God we're here, but fear can cripple us. And it's done that. It's done that to our nation, to our world. And my life, Sometimes we're just asking God, where are we supposed to go? Where are we supposed to go? And we're so scared to move forward. But we don't realize that God has grace on us. Sometimes God desires us to, to walk with him. And then we, when we hit a wall, 
He's like, okay, then we just go get up and keep moving with God another way. And sometimes those walls are God's just appointments of him leading and guiding us. Look at verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wow. David, from the man who was told by God through the prophet, David, through your line, the Messiah was going to be coming. From your line, there's going to be a man who reigns on the throne for eternity. Finally, after all these years, 400 years later, a Messiah is, has come. Christ the Lord. We look at Christ, that word means Messiah, the anointed one. The anointed one for what? The anointed one to give us a new life. He came. And then in verse 12, and this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now look at what these angels are doing. They're giving glory to God. So, so should we. You see, we should worship God not only in this Sunday morning time of music, but we should worship God with our lives. What is worship? Why do we, why do we sing songs before the Bible study? Is that like the trailer to the movie that's coming up? No, worship is a literal response to who God is. God in our life shines down his glory upon us he says, I am glorious, and we shout back, you are glorious. God proclaims, I am Savior, and we proclaim back to him, you are Savior. That's what worship is. I, and I love all types of Christian artists nowadays and worship songs. Uh, but sometimes, uh, I, I think sometimes we get a little... Some of the, the songs that come out, they get a little too, too focused on the person who is singing. It's the, the poor Mimi's. It's the, oh, Lord, like, I spilled barbecue sauce on my white T-shirt today. <laughs> it's, it sucks to be me right now. God, just please, like, help me with this. And it's all really focused on the person. Of course, I'm exaggerating. It's not that much about cowboys. But uh, I love the songs that, sing to God specifically. The songs that say, God, you are good. Jesus, we love you. And it's singing to God. Now, not to be dogmatic about it. I'm not saying that those are the only songs that we could sing. There's a time and a place for everything. Now, how do we apply worship to our lives? You see, we must be motivated to do things for God's glory. Not for our own glory, but for him. When you come across that situation where you're saying, ah, I don't know if I should do this in my life. I mean, it's not, maybe it's a sin, maybe it's not. It's one of those gray areas. 
ask yourself, does that activity bring glory to God? Does that action, does that decision bring glory to God? And if the answer is no, then I would encourage you to really take a step back and ask God to give you the strength not to do it. The cool thing about our life as a believer is that when we are walking with God, when we are abiding with Christ, he makes something like getting groceries a holy act. He makes something as simple as getting coffee ready for a Sunday morning service a holy act of worship, of being organized for somebody else. He makes that sanctified because you are doing it unto God. Now, continuing on, as these angels are worshiping the Lord, I'm I'm reminded that in heaven, that's what we're going to get to do. It's just worship God. And some people think, well, isn't that going to get kind of boring? I, I don't think so at all. I actually believe, too, that it's not just music. I believe that there's going to be a whole life of eternity where we're learning of the infinite being who created the universe. And it's going to be quite marvelous. And if you don't like that, I mean... There's another option. In verse 15, it says, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So now these shepherds are like, Whoa, what was that? What did we just experience? Let's go. Let's go find out what they're talking about. Let's go to Bethlehem. That city name, Bethlehem, it means house of bread. And how interesting that in the house of bread, Bethlehem, that is where the bread of life came to this earth. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus actually, when you study the New Testament, he has seven I am statements. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Meaning that he who ever eats of him, takes part of him, will not be hungry. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So those who walk in darkness, when they turn to Jesus, they have light. He said, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. Sometimes in our life, we're just asking God to open a door for us. We're asking God to give us an opportunity, a chance, so that we can live that purpose-filled life, our desires. Jesus says, I am that door. You will find those desires through me. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Meaning he is our caretaker. He is our provider. He will lead us to pastures that we can feed on. He will protect us from wolves. Jesus says, I am the resurrection 
and the life. So if we are dead in sin, Jesus has that power to resurrect us. If we hate our lives, Jesus can give us a new life found in him. That was found in John chapter 11. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when we've lost our way, when we're confused, when we're lost in the lies of this world, Jesus is that way. He is that truth. And then in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he who abides in him bears much fruit. So we can live that purpose-filled life. Jesus, if we're seeking to be used by him, seeking to bear fruit in this world, in this life, then go to Jesus for it. I am the true vine. So now from the house of bread, from Bethlehem, it says in verse 16, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they were made, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So here now, once they find Mary and Joseph, they're so amazed with the Savior of the world coming that they have to tell people. They can't keep it to themselves. They're the first evangelists going out, motivated by love, sharing with all. See, when you have that love of Christ in you, we can't hinder it. We shouldn't hinder it, but we should be sharing it. You see, we can't just keep our Christianity to ourselves, or be undercover Christians and think, oh, we're going to get this person saved without us having to really tell them that we're Christian. No, we need to be evangelists everywhere we go. Asking God to give us opportunity to share. Asking for those open doors. So now as the shepherds are all running around as the first evangelist, it says in verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now that word ponder, it means to collect and gather, to meditate and to walk through the meaning of these things in one's mind. She's asking questions in her mind, I'm sure. She's probably saying, who, who is this child that God has given me? What will he grow to do? Where, where will he go and why? And when you want to meditate on the Lord, on his goodness, I, I find that that's a, a helpful tool to use. Let's ask who, what, where, when, and why? What are those things? When you're, after you read a, a devotion time, you read some of the word and you go about your day, to meditate on the Lord means, hmm, who, who wrote this? Who was it written to? Who were the characters in the, in the account that I read this morning? 
What did they do? Where did they do it? Why did they do it? Why does it impact me? All those questions can help us to meditate as we go about our day. And the meditation that we have, it's going to help us to better understand the word of God, what he's trying to say to us. So Mary is pondering these things in her heart. It says in verse 20, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So as was the Jewish law, Jesus was circumcised and he was named eight days. After eight days, they called him Jesus. When you look at his Greek name, it's Jesus. And Jesus is, comes from Ye meaning God, Jehovah. And Sus is Shua, which means salvation. So Jesus' literal name means Jehovah is salvation. I love that. You see, wherever we're at this morning, whatever trial we're in, if we need saving in it, Jesus is that answer. In verse 22, Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they go through the whole tradition and the whole law is given to to Moses, to the Jewish people for holiness so that he can be set apart for God. And we practice that. Uh, we, we don't do infant baptism because we don't find that in, in the Bible and that's something that we see as should be the decision of an individual. But we do do baby dedications where we will pray over a child and dedicate our, our life to raising them in the Lord. And that's what they did here with Jesus. And the pair of two turtle doves, I'm like, is that from the Christmas song? Or is that where they got it from? I don't know. But I do see that Jesus was set apart for God's purposes. When we end this, uh, this morning, turn to Luke chapter 4. You see, Jesus was set apart for God. He had a mission as the Messiah. He tells us what this mission is in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. As Jesus is there in the temple with the Jewish leaders, it says in Luke 4, verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus had a mission. He was anointed to give us freedom, to give us a new life, to give us liberty. When he himself would be made poor, he would be made broken, he would be bruised for our transgressions, Jesus was sent to proclaim liberty to us. So this is the truth that we get to walk in this week and through this eternity. But especially remembering this week of why Jesus came to this world. Why he came into your life so that you can know and understand this week that he wants you to give him Fully and completely your whole life. Not just a part of it, but fully and completely. Making room in your heart so that he can be the author and finisher of our faith. Let's stand. If there's parts of your heart, of your mind, and you need to surrender to Jesus this morning, to just worship him fully, completely, just raise your hand this morning. Let's just give that to him. Whatever that thing is, why don't you just talk to God about it for a moment and just tell him that you want him to take it. Tell him you want him to get rid of it for you because you don't have the strength. Ask for his Holy Spirit to give you the power, the grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning. 
May we be motivated by love. May we be motivated to be, Lord God, glorifying to you, Lord. Not for ourselves, but only for you. We love you, Father. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good news of great joy For every woman, every man will be a sign to you a baby born in Bethlehem come and worship do not be afraid a company of angels glory the peace among those of whom his favor is come and worship do not be afraid my soul my soul magnifies the Lord my soul magnifies the this Wednesday night we're still going to have our live stream of our last study and looking at the nativity but be filled with his spirit this week may you grow in his grace it's in Jesus name we pray amen